This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This week on The Real Guy Podcast, find out how a gentle giant and everybody's favorite person can still be an SOB. In this episode, we hear stories about fishing, family, friends, and relationships with Jody Moore, a gentleman of the sport and a certified real guy, all this week on The Real Guy Podcast. Clear the airways. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is The Real Guy Podcast. All right, welcome to The Real Guy Podcast. This week, I sit down with a real SOB. Jody Moore, thanks for, thanks for taking some time and thanks for being on The Real Guy Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So, Jody, um, you were telling me right before I got this track going that I always thought you were a local, been here forever. You, you transplanted to Fort Lauderdale? I'm a Navy brat, so I've lived all over. Actually, my first memory in life was Key West when my father was stationed down there with the Navy at the submarine base there. And uh, oddly enough, one of my first memories is uh, my grandparents came down to visit, and we went down to the dock, and I saw some hanging tarpon when they used to hang tarpon. <laughs> And it was so impressive. That's actually my very first memory. Key West, Key West, dead tarpon hanging yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> You're not the only one. I mean, they did that on purpose. Sure. It was to show them off. Yeah, to get guys. Get people sign up. Get guys like you. And um, to think of how different, you know, things are today where you can hold a tarpon out of the water and people are calling you a son yep, of a bitch, you know. Exactly. So you've been through the whole cycle. Right. So uh, fortunately, most of the places I lived, because my father was in the Navy, we're shore-based. So I started fishing early on, uh, originally out in California, San Francisco Bay, and uh, never really stopped since. So it started in San Francisco, Key West? Key West first, um, Charleston, San Francisco, Virginia, Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. And went to school at Tulane in New Orleans. And as soon as I graduated, I moved to South Florida. And what year was that? 1984. Okay. And um, I know you're a family guy. How many kids do you have? Four. Four. And they went through the St. Anthony's. St. Anthony's and St. Thomas, yes. Right. That's, um, <laughs> you know, I never went to St. Anthony's. Right. But I was, uh, my kid um, did St. Anthony's. She thought I wanted her to go to St. Thomas Aquinas because I went there. And um, she actually asked to go to Cardinal Gibbons. So I thought to myself, man, how lucky am I? I get to choose St. Thomas or Cardinal Gibbons, and you know, you, you great start, choices. Well, yeah, you sit back, you realize how fortunate you are when 
Those are your choices right. to make. And your kid actually gives a shit about what school she's going to. <laughs> you know, that yeah. was, it was impressive to me, you know, Good. that she actually came to me and, you know, talked to me about it. Good. So you're, you're, uh, so that's when, um, you became attached to, to the city for the most part and raising your family here. Yeah. I, I started my career in recruiting here in South Florida, um, got married, had kids, um, started my business back in uh, 98 okay. and uh, MSI recruiting so here I am and you're still doing recruiting now what are yep. you doing yeah in? same thing what a pretty impressive I mean the office <laughs> I came to today I was telling Judy that either uh, when every time I sit in a room like this I either make a lot of money or lose a lot of money <laughs> big big pendulum it's funny because this is one of the this is the old landmark bank building right yes it is this used to be I don't know, go like back to 1983 or so. It was like the biggest building in all of Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, the, uh, the original story is the guy who built it. Um, there was just one or two buildings, very small, and he built this monstrosity, and no one said he was going to fill it up, and everyone wanted to be in it, so he filled it up right away. Right. So it was a success story. So you're hardcore professional, but you love the fishing. Yes, I identify with that. Um, when I first moved to Fort Lauderdale, mm-hmm. and then I spent some time over in, um, in uh, Sarasota, but started fishing here, um, got into fly fishing. Uh, there was an old shop down the street called Anglers Afield, mm-hmm. and uh, some people may remember Bob Kay. He was the resident fly tire there right. and casting instructor, and uh, he was a character in himself. Anyway, um, I bought my first fly rod there and took a lesson and uh, took lessons how to tie flies from Bob as well. So I'm Bob K trained. That's cool. <laughs> and you know, my um, we have a we have a mutual friend and and fishing buddy Tim O'Connor. Tim was telling me that like he was pretty impressed with the way he could tie some flies. It's an art. I consider it an art, so I put a lot of time and effort into it and enjoy the um, the creativity of it. I wish I could. I'm not kidding. Like, I got all the fly stuff, and I sat down, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with some basics. And then I was, like, hoping that I would, like, really get into it, you know. And the more I did it, the more I'd, like, curse at myself and, you know, get frustrated. And I said, you know, I think I'm just going to get the guys that really like to do the stuff to tie the flies that I want. I, not, not me so much, but I think it is a talent that some people just have with that creativity. Right. <clears throat> a lot for me is getting the right materials get the right material to work it it's going to work for you and then practice the first three flies of any pattern i tie i usually could just throw them out it's really i looked at like 20 30 of the same pattern mm-hmm. and that way as the as they progress they get better and better mm-hmm. and then i go on to another pattern but just to tie one pattern here and then try another one and another one it's never going to look right right yeah and and, and I don't know. Maybe it's just me and my hand coordination or whatever, but I just wish I could get into that. Because what I'll I'll do now is um, I get into the podcast. I spend a lot of time editing. Editing is boring, dude. Like, like I was doing that all day today, you know, and I'm like in a zone and I'm like, okay, I got to get going. And anyway, it's not tie flying, put it that way. But that's what I spend my extra time doing. But it keeps my mind mindless. Right. Yeah, you know I mean, I can escape and do and do my own thing. 
I um, I usually do it at the end of the day. I'm trying to relax. I just don't like sitting there watching TV and doing nothing. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get up at the end of the evening and having tied six or seven patterns. I feel some sort of accomplished as opposed to being just boobed out on the tube. So yeah, yeah, right on. Now this um. There's a lot of people in town that either you introduce fly fishing to or you fly fish with. Um, well, I'm a certified fly casting instructor. So I I don't really hire myself out. I get calls once in a while to say, hey, can you teach me? You know, I'll do, yeah, I'll hire myself at that point. I don't advertise it. But I do give away fly fishing lessons to charity type organizations that are using it for a silent auction. Right. So I've met a lot of good people that way. Um, I actually taught Sylvester Stallone how to fly fish way really? back when, yeah, probably 25 years ago. Ten facelifts ago. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, <laughs> I got a call from Captain Harry's, and they said, uh, there's a client of ours that wants to learn how to fly fish, and can you do it? Certainly. And they didn't really tell me who it was, and I got a call from a guy. It turned out to be... Stallone's agent. Right. So we went through that and then finally said, well, it's Sylvester Stallone. And <laughs> so I had to meet him at his house. <clears throat> at the time, he was living just north of the uh, of Vizcaya. He had bought the property that the, the relatives of John Deering, the guy who built Vizcaya, right. owned. So he's still on this property. There were fountains and works of art and walkways that were actually had once been part of Vizcaya. That's cool. So we tied, yeah, we, I taught him how to fly fish down there. <laughs> how, how was he? How was he? Was he was He's a good, good guy. guy. Yeah, I thought he'd, uh, you know. Did he seem like a real guy? He was a real guy. I was kind of waiting for, you know, um, Rocky to come out. You know, Yo, what are we doing, huh? <laughs> but I didn't get any of that. He was actually a good guy. And back then he was with, still is with Jennifer, his wife, and she was gorgeous. Yeah, that must have been pretty yeah. jaw-dropping. I gave him, uh, <clears throat> we went through like six lessons, so I was down there six times. When I do give away lessons to charities, I I, I usually do it for two, either husband, wife, father, son, and that's been real popular. Okay, so you do like the private session and then the right. proceeds. Right. Because the reason I bring all this stuff up is anytime that I talk about Jody Moore, it seems like it's really important for you to spread the love, the passion for the water and for fishing. It's a constant theme every time we talk about it. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> it is. And then to find out that um, you're the current president of the SOBs, the oldest fishing club in... Sports Fishing in Broward. Right. Great club. It uh, has a high barrier of entry, and you have to catch... Uh, 10 out of 30 designated species over a three-month period. So this keeps out, I hate to say it keeps out anybody, but it just keeps out the Guggen types that are looking for a free well, it's fishing for the, trip. it's for the achievers. It's for the guys it's, that are yeah, applying so themselves that, a little more. Yeah, so that uh, each guy in there is an accomplished fisherman. So when we do go on trips, you're not really set up with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and you turn into a guide which right. is no fun right 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 and why 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 is that important to you to um educate show people and i mean face it we all focus on achievement levels 
That's good. I've never answered that question. Um, part of it is I like to be on stage, just be recognized as someone who knows what they're doing. So that's kind of fun. That's pretty honest. Um, the other is uh, I do get a, a good feeling about, especially teaching kids. Um, I'll get approached by a father. Hey, my son's really into it and he really wants to. So, yes, I want to teach that guy, that kid, really how to do it so he doesn't pick up poor mistakes or gets frustrated with it. Get him really head started on it so that he can go out and really have fun with it. Because with fly fishing, the better you are at it, the more fun it is. Right, right. I'm going to pick your brain just a little bit because my 16-year-old, she turned, she turned 17 tomorrow. Um, she picked up the fly rod, let's call it three years ago. Right. And she's got a natural stroke, which is kind of cool. She's got the right demeanor. She doesn't get frustrated and everything. So what I've been doing with her is I will do 30 minutes once or twice a month. We'll go down to Holiday Park. I put her on the AstroTurf, mm. and I just kind of let her go. I don't really try to overcoach her. But now she's getting to a point where she can throw, you know, 60 feet consistently. Great. And she can manage her line and everything. How hard do you would you recommend that I, me as a dad push the kid? Because she wants to do it, but I don't want to be I say too much. you separate yourself from it. And have somebody think get some get some outside help. Yeah, yeah. They'll we know kids, right? They'll listen to somebody else more than they might their dad. Right. <laughs> it's probably the perfect timing for that too, because um, she could actually get a lot out of it now that she can manage her line and 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 she knows she wants to do it now. One of right. the things that Timmy and I did um, last summer is uh, we brought Victoria out with us and let her see us catch some tarpon on fly Mm -hmm. so i didn't say too much to her after that but when we got home she said she straight up looked at me says i want to do that and i says okay i says a few more 30 minutes here and there i said you're going to be ready and she's she'll be able to do it this this summer well fly fishing for me is is just another means i know people who look at it exclusive like that's all they'll do yeah and they even get kind of upset with me when i post a picture that I caught it on a plug rod or I caught a, fly, a fish on a spin. And the reality is I'm going to use whatever is the most effective way to catch a fish. Um, so let's say if I go out west to go trout fishing, well, obviously I'm going to use fly rod because that's the most fun, effective way to catch that fish. If I go to the Bahamas to wait for bonefish, it'll be with a fly rod as well because it's the most effective, stealthy way to catch a fish fly fishing for tarpon down in the keys when the tarpon runs going again the most effective way is it the most effective way to catch a permit no right, right. <laughs> it's accomplishment to catch one on a fly granted but if you really want to catch a permit you're going to use a live crab right. right so you'll see me using a live crab more often than so you're not afraid to cross over you keep it simple and basically work on the best methods instead of trying to force anything yeah and if i go bass fishing you know here in west broward Yes, I'll use fly, but really more recently I've been using plug rod. I really just enjoy working the different lures that the bass fishing has from the worms to top water to whatever. Right. So I believe that's its own skill set. I just like to be well-versed in each. Right. 
right? I think the um, the elitist fly fishing attitude crowd, whatever you want to call it, I think it's fading. I think I hope so. <laughs> well, I think it's fading, and I think like I think there you know more people like you, you know, are saying, hey, whatever, I'll catch a fish because it's a fish, and I love fishing, and I think everybody is starting to mix and merge a little bit more because I remember when I first started guiding. Um, I was into the fly fishing, but it was like all or nothing. It was like either you marketed yourself and worked on your fly fishing or you went after the guy that is, you know, definitely not into fly fishing or doesn't know how to do it. Right. It was hard to mix it. Here, you know, 25 years later, not doing tons of fly fishing, but I would maybe call it 20, 30% of my trips now are fly where it used to be five percent you know every once in a while a guy would want right. to do fly so i don't know it just seems to me that um people think it's more achievable they think it's cooler easier i don't know but it's happening well there was a time back in the 90s when i would fish the everglades every rod on the boat was a fly rod i was just into trying to catch everything on a fly but you know the days that it was windy or just something wasn't happening. So now I have both. I have spin tackle, plug, and fly rod when I go out so that I can address every situation gotcha. that I run into. Did any of your uh, kids take to it? Broke my heart. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> no. The boys will go uh, and they enjoy themselves, but they're not, there's no passion there. Yeah. I think. Um a lot of dads have called me over the years, you know, to fish with them and their kids and have a good day. And it's a natural. I mean, you want your kid to love what you love or right. at least, you know, what you love to do in your, in, your, in your time, your pastime. But you never know with the kids. You know? Right. And you know what? Let them go after what they want to do. Introduce them to it. But if they don't take to it, why force them? Right. The other side of it is I'll get a call from a dad who has no interest in fishing, has no experience in it, and they have a son who is absolutely wild about it. And they feel that they're not, they, they, they want to feed that passion, feed that monster, so to speak, but they have no means to do it. They feel really useless. And, and, well, it's just, you, know, you feel so inadequate because it's not your thing. thing. Yeah, they feel yeah. like you're missing out. Well, that's, that's got to be fulfilling to fill that spot because... Um, and it's not just us dads. There's a will, I think, for all fishermen to teach it either to, of course, their family members, their sons, their daughters, their friends. Right. Or sometimes, like in a club like yours, when you see a guy trying to achieve things and you see him busting his ass and you know what it takes in order for him right. you know, to achieve these accomplishments, it's cool to put your arm around him and to help him along. Certainly. And it's rewarding. I've done it for years, and I didn't realize what I was doing, of course, until I got older. Right. And I had the kid, and I could, you know, understand the progress. My ego was so big, and I wanted to be better than everybody else when I was younger. Right. I didn't get it. Yeah. Well, you know, with kids, too, sometimes they take you down a journey you didn't anticipate. So, as a, for instance, my oldest son really wasn't interested in fishing, but he was more interested in playing games video games and I couldn't stand that so about when he was around 10 years old I realized I'm losing him like we're not having this connection so I thought what, what can I do 
So I was into um, a little bit shooting sporting clays and wing shooting birds and, I mean, um, ducks and, and dove and, and like. So I thought, well, let me take him to Quail Creek. We'll go up there for the day. What kid won't like shooting a gun? So we went up there, and he absolutely loved it. Cool. So I put him on a quail hunt. <clears throat> he was around 11 years old, and um, his mother was all terrified of him going hunting and didn't want a little boy killing anything, that kind of thing. Anyway, we went, and um, at the morning on a release bird hunt, and um, at the end of it, he came home, and he told his mother it was the best day of his life. Oh. And then from there, you know, we started hunting. And after a while, I said, Dad, can we shoot something big? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, he wanted to shoot a, something bigger with a rifle. So um, Fred Finizzi, who was running Quail Creek at the time, set me up to do a pig hunt up there. And I had never pulled a rifle. I'd always been shotguns. And um, that night, you know, he shot his first pig. And it was a glorious evening. And then I started taking him uh, to different places. Friends had always said, hey, Jody, I've got this property you can hunt on it. I never took him up on it. Now I was calling, hey, remember that coffee? <laughs> and, <laughs> you, um, you make any call for the kid, right? Yeah, and my uncle sent me a um, a um, rifle, an old deer rifle that my grandfather owned, 270. So we started using that. And um, uh, I remember um, we were sitting at this ground site one morning looking at a at a uh, feeder and a pig came out first light and my son shot and killed it and he's like well, let's go collect it and I said no nah, it's so early there'll be another one coming he goes well why don't you shoot it dad and I'm like well I'm here for you not now I want you to shoot it dad and so I, okay, I didn't think I'd enjoy it uh, probably like 30 minutes later pig came out and when I saw that thing in the crosshairs I was hooked <laughs> Got his ass, and then the, the adrenaline. And then went. I got way more into hunting, and you know, um, dude, your kid did to you exactly what you wanted to do to him. Right? That's awesome. What a great story. Yeah. How does yeah. it? Yeah, God loves you. Yeah. Can I tell you? No, because um, I can't tell you how many dudes get defeated when their kid doesn't like the sport especially fishing because that's what we see all the time and you know it's uh not all of them get the the reward at the end like you did Mm -hmm. you know now i mean being a head at a fishing club that's not like an easy thing to do i mean there's a there's a bit to it what what motivated you to be uh, well i wasn't motivated to do it i (laughs) don't be too honest yeah right (laughs) well uh, when I first moved here um, for the second time, I lived here for a little while and then Sarasota and then came back. I went to a dinner and there was a guy sitting next to me started talking about snook fishing. Long story short, he belonged to this club called South Florida Flats Anglers and he invited me to come to the meeting. So I went and I was immediately hooked because these guys fished. They knew it, and they had a set schedule. They went twice a month. I joined. I didn't have a boat at the time. I was allowed to join even though I didn't have a boat and within six months I'd bought a boat but what I learned in those first I don't know five to six years with that club would have taken three lifetimes because I'm fishing with guys who've been fishing Whitewater Bay for 30 years right they knew everything about it 
Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Um, we go to areas that I would have never gone on my own, in the Keys and West Coast. and So what I learned in that time period was just invaluable, and it got me deep into the sport. That's so cool. I'm, I'm a big proponent of fishing clubs because... Well, let me put it this way. If you're not interested in meeting good guys, not interested in really learning your sport, not interested in trying out new areas, don't join a club. Very <laughs> you good. Know, you know, just... No, yeah. it's, that's really good because almost everybody, um, you know, they, they're selling you on the club. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think it's better to put it that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you don't want to enhance your game and bring it up, yeah, don't join a club. <laughs> right on. And the SOBs... Um, we're assuming everybody knows uh, the history and everything by that. Can you tell the audience a little bit about how far back they go and so on? I and should so know forth. the history better than I do, but it was uh, started by a group of, of very dedicated fishermen, one of them being Dr. Gordy Hill, um, who's still with us. He lives in the Keys. And uh, Gordy is probably one of the most accomplished fishermen I know. Um, he certainly has been innovative in uh, fly fishing and uh, been consulted by different fly rod companies and and he was part of the IGFA and so he's very deep and he and a number of other guys came up with this club idea and the idea was a couple things um, keep the dues way down because they didn't want to be an elitist rich boy club right? but make it difficult to get in not difficult but you had to have your your game on to get in and create this very solid club of well-accomplished anglers. And um, so, yeah, I joined um, a number of years. My my original club kind of fell apart after a while. Mm -hmm. I even created a very small club for uh, seven or eight years, and then the economy took a a dive and everyone kind of had their own thing. Yeah, had their own thing. (laughs) So... um, um, I joined this club for a while, and I, I just came back into it recently. Um, uh, uh, I had a period there where my wife was sick, and she died, and I was a single parent for a while, so I had about six years there. I just wasn't able to do anything like that. But anyway, I joined, and it's been great. You know, it's reintroducing me to people I've known in the past. I've got new friends now. Um, we've got a good schedule going. I'm learning things, fishing with great people. Right. So, well, I grew up going to the f- different fishing clubs and the different seminars and stuff, and then, you know, working and then getting away from it for a little bit. And then, as I became a guide, I started to get invited to speak at the fishing clubs. Right. And um, I kind of, it was so weird for me because I was used to speaking to people. I was used to being in front of people but when it came to the fishing clubs like i would get a lump in my throat and then i'd look at the audience and i'd be like how many of these guys are better than me and <laughs> you know and it, it really kind of gave me butterflies that i didn't feel but maybe a few times in my life like 
college football, high school football, and then the fishing club things, maybe a few tournaments. But, man, looking at those guys and trying to, you know, speak to them as an authority was really hard well, for me. Well, that's interesting you say that. One of my, and I've gotten over it because of this, but one of my absolute deathly fears was speaking in front of a group. I could speak to four or five people, but once it got past ten, it was terrible. And to get up in front of a group, like you mentioned, experts, was really terrifying. And one of the things I wanted to accomplish in life was to get over that fear. So when I started writing for Florida Sportsman, because of that recognition, I was called upon by many fishing clubs. There were more back then than there are today. Um, you know, the uh, Miami, what was it, one of my Rod and Reel? Miami Rod and Reel Club. Right. Spoke there. I spoke at West Palm Beach Club. Dude, that was one of the most nerve-wracking days of my life. <laughs> they called me, right, and I'm driving up there by myself in traffic, and th- that was one of the things I was referring to. Yeah. That night, driving to that club, and I'm thinking all the famous dudes that spoke at that club. Yeah. And I'm like, they want me to speak here? Yeah, right. It, it freaked me out. Well... What helped me was I, because of all the photography I had to do for the magazine, I could do a slideshow. So I could turn off the lights, <laughs> look at my slideshow, and not have to look at the crowd yeah. and speak. Eventually, you know, I got over that part, and I'm, I can look at a whole crowd, and I have no problem with that. But that, I'd always admired great speakers, and one of my things was, well, I'm a loser if I can't get up there and do that myself. So just doing it, and then realizing I am the expert. These guys don't know as much as I do in this particular area. Start to believe in yourself a little exactly. bit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that, 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 that's the same, same story with me, except I was used to speaking in front of people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe it was freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't bother me now, but there was a time. Well, talk, about, talk a little bit about your Florida sportsman days. Yes, I, was, uh, uh, I had written one or two articles for a very small magazine called the In Fisherman. In Fisherman, yeah. It was just a little, and I was really proud of that. I thought that was a big deal. And I got a call out of the blue um, from one of the editors there, and they said, uh, we'd like you to, to take on the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the uh, field editorship for um, South Florida. And that was crazy to me because that had been held by Chico Fernandez for years and years. I didn't think about that. Yeah, so I'm stepping into Chico's. Shoes. I was like, me? (laughs) So uh, I accepted it with much trepidation. Um, You know, can I do this? And uh, it was it was a good thing for me because it uh, sharpened my writing skills. Really got me into the photography part. I had to call many many captains from Biscayne Bay on up to talk about what they were seeing. So I got to learn things and understand stuff and. Um, there was a lot of pressure from the magazine to produce an article. So I was writing about 12 articles a year. Uh, I probably got about 15 cover shots for the magazine over that time. Excellent. The fun part was um, I got a lot of my friends in the magazine because I would be fishing with them. Right. And a lot of times I'd catch a fish and hand it to them because <laughs> I wanted that photo. Right. Not so much of me, but of the fish and somebody else holding it and so I could get the shot right. So I had a great time with that and learned a lot and uh, it was fun. The one time, the only time that, I don't want to say it worked against me, but 
it's a fascinating story. Uh, a friend of mine and I, Tony Wells, we were down in Key West uh, fishing for permit. And we were out on this flat, and every time we came up to a, some tailing permit, just as we were getting casting range, they, the tails would dip down. They just kind of slowly swim off. We couldn't get within casting range. So finally he suggested to him, why don't you get out of the boat and wade to him? Okay, so I do that. Now, this was a muddy flat, kind of hard to wade through. Twice as I'm wading towards these fish, a big swirl took place behind me. Shark, <laughs> you know, getting in my mud trail. Oh, what am I doing? Anyway, I, I cast two fish using a life grab, catch a fish. I'm real excited. I turn around to look at Tony because he's still in the boat, and he wasn't up on the polling platform. And I see him climbing over the side of the boat. I was like, what's he doing? And I see off to the side, there's a tailing fish. On the other side? He, uh, yeah, so he, within three minutes of me hooking my fish, he hooks that fish. And literally, we landed them within 60 seconds of each other. So um, I said to Tony, this is kind of wild, let's get a picture. So he's holding both fish by the tail. He's waist deep in the water. And I take a couple shots of him holding up. And then he says, Jody, why don't you, we switch places? I'm like, sure. I had the camera all set. I jump in the water, hold up both fish out of the water. They're dripping. They're, you know. So that I used as a shot for an article. And they used it as the front page shot. <laughs> well, that down in the Keys went crazy. Because people would not, guides, would not accept the fact that we caught two permit at once. A double. They were like, oh, they went out to the reef or a wreck and caught both. They killed those fish. It was just, I was amazed at, The skepticism. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Dude, I'm a, I'm a little older, but I'm a, I'm a YouTube guy. You want to talk about skepticism. Social media rips you apart. You could be freaking the best dude that ever walked the face of the earth and you get ripped apart on social media. Oh yeah. And, um, I really, I released a bass one time, filmed it. I got all sorts of shit for the way I released it. Like, <laughs> now it's it's only on social media. Does anybody ever walk up to you and talk to you in your face about, "Hey, dude, I saw that bass." You know that's bullshit. At six five, you know, <laughs> three hundred pounds. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> that's what uh, that's what Timmy says. He says, "You know, for such a good fly fisherman and a guy that loves to tie flies, he's such a hulk of a man. You wouldn't think of it." <laughs> how, how well yeah. do you know Tim O'Connor? Oh, pretty good. You know, Tim. Tim came to my rescue um, after my wife died. Um, he was real good about getting on the phone and um, getting me down to the beach when the when the uh, snook were running and getting me out and get, doing something. Trying to get back yeah. in your groove. And that's uh, that's an interesting thing because when something like that happens, you know, there were some expectations I had of like like what I call my first tier friends. Some of them didn't even show up. Right. And it was these. A lot of times the third tier, like a Tim, who was the one actually making... Making the effort. Making the effort, making something happen. So I look back on that where, you know, it was to get that invite and, you know, show up at the beach and... Well, I think you're lucky, um, you know, just to be friends with a guy like Tim O'Connor. Because I'm, I'm good buddies with him. I spend my free time with him. And um, the longer I know the guy, the more I feel fortunate. And to be able to be his fishing buddy, he calls, he, he, he refers to himself, to me, as my guide. 
Yeah. Because when we get a chance, yeah. we go on his boat. He loves to sport all his fancy right. shit. And then, you know, we go out and I laugh. I let loose. And like you said, he's not afraid to give the effort of being a real friend. Right. And then to mix that with fishing, it's a home run. Yeah. So I, I hate to call him a third tier friend. It was that was then. Now he's a first tier. <laughs> oh, and you learn about a guy, you know, and, yeah. and you find out what you find out. Yeah. You know, it and, changes quick. And he is uh, he's the most accomplished guy I've ever seen when it comes to fishing that mullet run. He loves the mullet yeah, run. Yeah, he's crazy about it. That That's how him and I became buddies. Um, as we got to know each other, we would tell the old stories about high school mm-hmm. and the mullet run mm-hmm. and the big jacks, and then we'd just go on and on, and then... When the mullet run came, he would actually be calling me first. And I'm like, who the frig is this guy? He knows there's a school of mullet, and I don't. And he's like, come on, we got to go down here. Yeah. They're coming down. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, I realized, you know, how into it, into the game he was. And it shows. I call him the Happy Bay World Champ. Because almost every year, you see him, the biggest smile you see, Holding a nice fish during the mullet run. And half a cigar hanging out of his mouth. Right. <laughs> the, the video, the video, we actually got a video of him crushing the 150-pounder on the I've beach. I've seen it, yeah. Everybody's seen yeah. it. It's got to be the most popular mullet run tarpon video yeah. in the history of YouTube. And uh, couldn't happen to a guy that, like you said, puts forth the effort. Oh, yeah. To He's, make the yeah. achievements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And... uh Last year, I watched him. Uh, we had a great school in front of us, and <clears throat> Tarpon were beating the crap out of him. And um, I hooked a shark and landed it, whatever. Then he waves out. Like the school kind of moved off out of casting range. You know, he's not a real tall guy, so he's, he waves out. Tall guy? He's a little leprechaun. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> he's trying to wade out to the, that first uh, sandbar. And he's almost up to his chin in the water you know, with the... With a rod over his head. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't even do that. I mean, I'm just not interested in getting bit, you know. <laughs> uh, Timmy, no fear when it comes to the mullet yeah, run with Timmy. Yeah. And as, as much as he worries about everything else, you'd think, you know, yeah. he'd be a little bit nervous <laughs> yeah. about doing that. When it comes to the mullet run, no holds barred yeah, for Tim O'Connor. Yeah, yeah. And it's good to get to talk to him, talk about him a little bit because he's such a humble dude. He's always making fun of himself, that kind right, of thing. right. So when he hears this, he's going to, you know, he's going to get yeah, it. Yeah, there's that self-deprecating humor that he uh, imposes upon himself. <laughs> you know, he's made good friends with my kid. Good. Well, you know, we, we fish together, mm-hmm. and, and, and they're friends. Right. You know, and I tried to explain that to my kid when she was maybe 11 or 12. I said, when you start fishing with people, I said, you don't get it. I said, you, you'll actually, you know, be close to them. I says, and you won't know who it's going to be. It could be somebody old. It could be somebody younger. It could be a guy, a girl, any race, any place. And who did she make the connection with? Timmy. The reason she makes a connection with Timmy is because Timmy, like you said, put forth the effort to go fishing. Right. And he said, hey, can a worm wants to go. And he's like, yeah, bring her. And then, heck, now I, uh, on, when I see my kid, I say to her, hey, what are you and Timmy doing later? Right. <laughs> We know what fascinates me about this area uh, in particular, and I've thought about it many times, is here in Broward County, South Florida, we live in an area where in a two-hour radius, there's no place in the world with the kind of fishing we have. 
you know, I've said that to people. Like, are you, you got to be kidding? No. Name me another place right. in the world, right. and they can't because there isn't. There isn't. So when you look at um, you know our pelagic species, our um, uh, estuarial species, our reef species, our freshwater species, exotics included, we're over a hundred hundred fish that we can catch. Right. And the different ways it can be done. So you run into these silos or, or expert areas. You know, Timmy's the expert on the beach. Correct. Right. Steve Kantner, another friend, put him on a fishing pier. No one beats him. Right. You know, he knows what he's doing. Um, you talk to some of these people that fish out here in West Broward, bass and like, and they're just incredible in their, their knowledge. You can go all around. And just having all those people at your, your not, not your beck and call, but as friends that you can say, hey, what's going on? You know, show me this or that. And the amount of fishing you can do in this area is just mind-blowing. Yeah, to your point, I have a, a cousin up in Massachusetts that's a fly fishing nut. And we've been doing it since we were kids together. And I visited him. The kid wanted to go see the Heat play the Celtics up there. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. You'd stay with my my cousin who loves fly fishing, who she's close with because of fishing. But to your point, uh, Eric wanted me to meet kind of like the fly cronies at the fly shop that he goes to. Mm -hmm. Except he's in Lexington, Massachusetts. The fly shop's in Concord, Massachusetts. Right. We travel 45 minutes to see two guys at a fly shop. Right. And here, if we travel 45 minutes, we're in Key Biscayne fishing bonefish. <laughs> so, 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 you know, to your point. Well, that's funny, too. When I go out west, and I've been going out there for the last 10 years, fish Wyoming um, for trout. And uh, we certainly go to the trout fly fishing shop. Well, they are, that's all they are for trout fishing fly shops. But, um, and... You know, we walk in, and I, I never want to walk in like I'm an expert, and I'm really trying to find out what they know and what I can learn. And eventually, it comes around. Where are you guys from? Oh, we're from Fort Lauderdale, and then we, yeah, and they are so fascinated with what we do. Um, you know, when we start talking about the peacock bass we have here, or the redfish and snook we catch in the Everglades, and certainly the tarpon and bonefish, they're just, they're, I can see they're super envious, even right. though they live in the you know, trout fishing capital of the world. Right. They're living the dream. They got the image, but they're thinking about what's this guy doing? <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. actually more interested in what we do down here. Well, that, that's what, that's what brought my dad here. Yeah. That's what brought us here in 1975, you know, in Massachusetts where we came from. Um, three month fishing season. A few dudes knew how to, you know, blue fin, a couple blue fish here and there. Right. There was no stripers back then cause they killed them all. Right. And, um, September comes and he's like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to fish till next June. Ugh. So it brought us to Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> and I was, I was having a conversation with uh, Skip Smith this week and Fort Lauderdale, there was a big part of what was built on guys like my dad coming here for either boating, fishing, surfing, whatever it right. might've been. Mm -hmm. But the fishing part of it, there's never been that many people coming to one point at one point in time for the common goal of sport fishing. Right. Only here in Fort Lauderdale. Right. Well, right. I say, well, Miami to Palm Beach. Right, right, right. You know? And um, I don't know, Wyoming, Montana guys, they've been reading about it, looking at it from the outside. Right. You know, the whole time. So well, as much as I love going out there to trout fish, I'm so thankful 
it's not my steady diet, much as I love it for the 10 days I'm out there. All right, so what is your steady diet? What do you like? What do you, when, you, when, you get, when you get a few days, what do you want to do? You know what? I can't lie. I just really love the Everglades. Everglades National Park? Yeah. Um, For good reason. Yeah. <clears throat> well, just the variety that's there and just uh, the place speaks to my soul. Uh, the, uh, just the vastness of the place, the, um, the, uh, the amount of species that can be caught there. Um, you can get lost there. In fact, I I just came back. I was there for um, I camped out there for three nights, and fished for four days, and uh, camped way back in the back country. In fact, the dock we pulled up our boat to. By the way, this is a campsite that can only be accessed by boat, mm-hmm. so you can't drive up to them. At any rate, you know, there's bass underneath the dock, and there's a snook right next to it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so we're deep, and just to be there. And really not see a boat or hear a boat the whole time. Had the whole place to yourself from dawn to dusk. And the quiet and the um, the fascination, well, the things you see, just amazing. Yeah, and, you, and it seems, I'm, I've only done that Everglades National Park like three times in my life. Four times, because I went on a python hunt. Well, actually, it wasn't in the park, next to the park. But, so I'm not the big, like every time I go there, I don't, I w- I'm not familiar with enough stuff, so it's like I'm overthinking everything. I'm a little bit off. And it's like not my, you know, go-to. Mm-hmm. So most of every time I've been there, I haven't felt that comfortable. Um, but everybody I know that understands the place and has learned the place a little bit over there can get into a mode like yourself, and they can lose themselves for f- two, three, four days at a time because they're in the park and they're doing what they want to do. Yeah, it's a it's a constant changing place with the seasons of the year. Um, we have species that move through. You know, wintertime you can have uh, cobia and pompano and um, uh, Spanish mackerel and um, snook, for instance. In the summertime, are more on the beaches and outside islands, and then in the wintertime they move back into the back country to stay warmer. So it's it's constantly trying to figure out where the fish are, what they're doing. Um, I've seen the place. It's interesting. Hurricanes come through and change many things. Mm-hmm. Islands that used to be there disappear. Creek mouse that used to exist disappear. One island becomes two islands. You know, right. lots of things like that change. But it's um, got a really interesting history uh, from the Indians that lived there. In fact, the campsite we were on is actually an old Calusa Indian site. Really? In the clamshells that they used to collect out on the Gulf side and bring up in their wooden canoes or laying all about. They would bring them up, eat them, and build up these sh- what they call shell middens. Mm-hmm. And once in a while I'll find a shell midden back there that's not a campsite anymore, but you'll know it's a shell midden because all of a sudden you come across this area in the shoreline, it's all shells. You know, it's built up. Like and the Bahamians do with the conks. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's always interesting when you look at it, you go, you know, I, I can see why they camped here because from this spot, you can see anybody coming from a long way off. So, friend or foe, they could identify. <laughs> you know, it wasn't tucked in right. behind some corner and somebody could come around and attack you. No, they could see them and be prepared for whoever was coming at them. Um, but anyway, those this this particular spot <clears throat> was a camp, a Calusa camp, 
And then at some point, um, it was inhabited by a um, half-breed Seminole trader who named Willie Willie, and he would trade with the Seminoles that would come down the, the rivers right out of the, the grassy areas there. Um, I don't know, he'd trade probably gunpowder, coffee, sugar, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, he was like a halfway point before they would all go maybe to Chukaluski, where there's a bigger trading station. I didn't know any of that stuff. <laughs> but I did go see a movie the other night with Busaka, the world's favorite millennial. We went to see The Path of the Panther. Okay, not familiar with it. Nobody's familiar with it. It's a Nat Geo thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's called The Path of the Panther. Now, uh, Busaka, the world's favorite millennial, he loves walking that Thakahatchee strain. Mm. Strand, strain, whatever they call it. Strand. And um, a lot of the movie was shot there. Mm-hmm. So he called me, and I took the warrant with me, and we went to Regal Cinema. We sat down in this huge place in these cush chairs. We were the only ones in the place and watched The Path of the Panther, which we'll do a podcast on soon. Good. But basically, The Path of the Panther is a documentary done showing the uh, environmental corridor that the panthers need in order to you know, right. stay, stay going and... It was cool because it was about the Everglades. And it was about, you know, the wilderness and that kind of thing. Sad thing was there was only three of us in there watching it. Hmm. Oh, really? That's too bad, yeah. Well, you know, you kind of wish more people would. And then my, I said that to uh, my buddy Lamont, who's, like, really into movies and film and all that stuff. And he says, dude, they can't even get them to go see The Rock anymore. They're not going to go see, you know, a documentary by Nat Geo. But at least somebody's making it. Right. Yeah, right. And and the story's there for the people that want to see it. Now, did you see the destruction of the grass flats in the Everglades? Yes. Talk about that a little Mm. bit. It it really happened with that hurricane that came through about... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What, seven or eight years ago? Irma? Irma? Yeah, the one that came up through the Keys and then went up the West Coast. And uh, uh, the flats that you used to find just south of Plover Keys, they were just lush with grass and very clean water. And then the grass flats you would find um, around uh, Pavilion Key and north of Pavilion Key and Crate Key, all gone. Um, just ripped them out. Now we thought, okay, well, grass does grow back. It hasn't happened. And so what we're missing, up to that that point, I had found a number of what I called gator trout spots. Mm-hmm. They were just always big trout, you know, 22, 24, 26-inch fish. You could always find them there. They're gone. Um, what you don't see anymore are people, you know, the in their... Uh, pontoon boats or just your, your your family trout fishers, you know, with their popping corks and stuff, they're gone because there's no trout to catch. Right, grass There's, there's is still gone. trout, but, you, you know, they're going to be around oyster bars and in pockets in the river and stuff like that, so you can still catch plenty of them, but 
they're just not there's no grass flats to hold them right uh, so that's really sad that and i can see how it's affecting other things because it's those things are a great food source you know the, the shrimp and crabs and blennies and pinfish and everything else that they hold just aren't there right and um any sign of it coming back Mm-mm. not really yeah and I've, I, I asked the locals about it and they all kind of shake their head yeah they don't know what's going on right. um you know that everyone wants to blame it on the water flow water and flow. what's not happening and this and that I'm, I'm like well why was it there before i don't think too much has changed i'm just not sure well it's too complicated for me yeah you know i uh i focus on what i know mm-hmm. which is fort lauderdale mm-hmm. miami mm-hmm. we haven't had grass here in freaking 20 years right that's sad too well it's sad but you got to pick your fight and you got to you got to know where you stand and right now, we're at the point in Fort Lauderdale where the water and everything is basically gone. Mm. So we're at a point now where we're at almost rock bottom. Yeah, hey, you know, when I first moved here, uh, I was at an office uh, here on the New River, and it looked right down on the New River. And if you stared at it long enough, you know, within four or five minutes, you see a tarpon roll. Right. That doesn't happen anymore. Doesn't happen anymore. And um, my whole thing is there's a, you know, the modern fishermen, take the millennial, Busaka, 30 years old, Mm -hmm. Zach Routman out here trying to do tarpon trips at 29 years old. Mm -hmm. Those guys are used to that. They didn't know the, they didn't know know the difference before. And at this point, I'm not even so concerned about getting the habitat back. I'm more concerned about people getting sick because the water is so friggin' polluted here in Fort Lauderdale. I'm afraid to watch the kids play in it. I watch the people at the sandbar. I cringe mm. because I know what they're swimming in. Yeah. Well, when you think of all the sailboats that come in and they, they didn't macerate their toilets out in the ocean, they come, oh, let's do it here. You know, and they're Wait. putting some real raw sewage in the water. Dude, you got... You, <laughs> You got that. You got the you know the bad pipes. You got just the drain runoff. You got all, everything. And my whole focus now is just to make the kids that are thirty years old realize that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And if I can create that um, narrative or educate them enough to realize that you know Mother Nature gave us so much more that we destroyed. Yeah. Once it's gone, or once people forget it was there. Right. Right, so it's uh, for instance when I first moved down here, Griffin Road Canal, you could go out there any afternoon. There'd be tarpon rolling, baby tarpon, catch them, and fly. Great time. That doesn't happen anymore. Right, right. Um, I have a little community I live in. Here's a great example. Not what poor example. There's a little pond in front of my house, and it's connected to the New River by some canal that they've probably at one point was a winding little creek that they've channelized it has mangroves on it but um, this little pond had about 30 maybe 40 baby tarpon in it mm-hmm. and uh, uh, one in particular was probably around 35 almost 40 pounds in this tiny little pond right. <laughs> and at night I could hear them crashing little baits and stuff like that well one day I come home afternoon and uh there's a city guy there and he's opened up four fire hydrants in our street and 
all this water's draining down the street and into this pond. I'm like, dude, you got to turn these off. This is going to kill the fish. And he's just a city worker. He doesn't know what he's doing. Doesn't turn them off, of course. Well, over the next day, I watched a dozen tarpon die. There were two big fish in there, I discovered. And um, just killed them. We don't get that back. Right. There's a few small ones in there still. But it was really sad to watch the big ones die. As, as, this, as this episode was happening, my phone's ringing off the hook. Yeah. And people are telling me that this is going on. And they're like, Jeff, I've, who do I call? What do I do? Yeah. And I, you know, uh, Tom Vola was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Vol- we were both on the street telling this guy, you got to Yeah, so Tom, stop. and he's like, what do I do? What do I do? And um, to think that I couldn't tell him, hey, this is who you call. This is the guy that will understand what you're talking about, and you'll get something done right away. Yeah. There was nobody in either the county or the city that you could actually call. They would understand. Why would they care? Why would they care? They're city workers. Who cares? They're just looking for their pension. That is true. They're just looking for their pension. So that we later found out that there was a leak somewhere way across the city and they wanted to relieve the water pressure. Wasn't even in our area or our neighborhood. And they just decided, they probably looked at a map and said, Oh, there's a retention pond. Let's just do it there. Boom. And, you know, no, fish kill. No regard for life whatsoever. No, none. Yeah. And they killed some turtles too. You know, so. Well, I think I think the the message we're trying to get to the city of Fort Lauderdale. And I don't think I don't think that a lot of us expect the city of Fort Lauderdale to necessarily solve any of the nature problems mm-hmm. that we have. But at least they could Understand that they're poisoning the water through the municipalities. And if they would start a program, then other municipalities could then follow. Mm. And I would, I would just think that of all the places in the world that we could find some sort of leadership to bring back overdeveloped areas. Right. This would be the spot. Right. And I think our, I mean, we're, we're big. I, I forget how, how big our budget is here, but it's huge. I should know it. It's. I think we're in the it, top ten or something. The whole yeah, country or yeah, something. It's, yeah. In fact, our economy in Broward County, if we were a state, would be number fourteen. So you would think that those people would take that, or or understand that they have the opportunity to be leaders right. in something that was that built the town. Yeah. Well, we need to talk to um, older, you know, people who grew up in the area, and you start to hear. Uh, when you talk to people who grew up in the area. Um, who are my age now, but were you know ten, twelve years old? They talk about how clear the water was; it was crystal clear. And as you mentioned, there was grass. There was even queen conch bouncing around. They could jump off these canals here and you know catch queen conch and the like. Now it's all silted up, brackish, dirty-looking stuff. This used to be the New River was a, a world-class tarpon fishing site. Yes, yes, it was. So you see those you know photos from the twenties and. 30s and people hanging fish and they just fish them right there you know there was charters that did that and you know there was charters right up until the um, early 90s you know with like uh, Captain Mark Croca and others that would drag live mullet through here it was a great tarpon fishery they don't do that anymore dude there's um, myself and, and the kid Zach you might see out there mm-hmm. but I fish from Fort Lauderdale to Crandon now 
just to keep my clients on the fish. Mm. And I could probably use a little bit more space than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's, yeah. not, it's not like it was the old days. In the old days, when I first started guiding part-time, I would be somewhere between um, Bradford's mm-hmm. and the jetty. Mm. That was my whole fishery. Never had to leave it. We would catch giant snook, tarpon, jacks. The sheep said fishing here was pretty good. Mm. I mean, it wasn't phenomenal like some places, but it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. If I see a few sheep said anymore, I'm like, what the hell are those things doing right. around here? Well, and then, you know, we can talk about that where this used to be good, this used to be good. And then you have things like um, when I first started fishing um, the Everglades, Flamingo area, the older guys in my fishing club said, you couldn't catch a snook in 1975. They weren't here mm-hmm. because of all the mosquito spraying they were doing in the Keys and just killed all the larvae. They you just couldn't get one. And when I first started fishing here, um, I could count, in, you know, if I caught five redfish in a year, that was a big year. Because right. we were just coming off that red, black and redfish craze, and they had wiped a, the brood, uh, this breeding stock out of the Gulf, wiped it out. Um, so you know, the redfish returned <clears throat> in great numbers. Uh, the snook certainly returned. Um, Spanish mackerel, you know, never caught those until they got rid of the nets. Right. Now they came back. back. And, um, yeah, I'm catching them over in the Everglades year-round now. Even up the rivers, the fresh water, like what? <laughs> right. So we see that. Um, I know it's not something coming back, but the uh, peacock fishing we have out here in uh, West Broward, mm-hmm. so, you know, the last couple of years is phenomenal. Well, you know, I was I was talking to some people about that um, the other day, and as far as the youth goes, thank God we got that part of the fishing environment growing. I mean, the kids are running around. I mean, they're catching exotics. They're catching yeah. peacocks, snakeheads, snakeheads, and a whole bunch of other different stuff that shouldn't be out there. But at least it's something for right, them. Right, right. Well, those peacocks are a lot of fun. I mean, the way they smash uh, a topwater. I mean, I've had them hit a topwater so hard, it's four or five feet in the air when they smack it. Right. And that, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> Dude, Shane Purcell took me one time down in uh down in miami around the airport and stuff and i'd never really i've I've caught them you know from the bank a couple times you know kind of a oh look there's peacocks here so we tried it and caught them but i never actually went out with somebody that knew what they were doing and um you know worked at catching peacocks so anyway we we did about a three or four hour trip and when i got done i was i was pretty amped i I, I loved it and uh, i couldn't believe how hard i worked throwing the plugs going from spot to spot and like i mean we lost ourselves out there in those little drainage grass around the miami airport yeah well this this last uh cold snap we had for three days back in january killed a bunch of them and it broke my heart i thought oh, it just was getting so great and i went out uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was still really good so yeah. i don't think it affected it too much yeah dude hang it we were talking um we haven't had much of a winter this year no they had a couple of real cold days, but man, I'm fishing uh, Fort Lauderdale the last few days, and the water temperature is 83 degrees in February. Well, the mangoes trees that usually bloom in March started blooming I in noticed, early February. I noticed that. <laughs> I noticed that. The um, 
God, I remember the old days we would look at the trees to figure out when we wanted to go snook fishing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Between the mango trees and the poinsettia trees, we were like kind of knew we were in the spawn. Yeah, like when the poinsettias come out, the tarpon fishing's good in the keys. Right. When the um, swallowtail kites show up, the tarpon show up, you yeah. know. Well, that's the kind of stuff my kid knows now. Mm-hmm. And she'll mention it to the other kids, and they'll look at her like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And then, you know, she feels like, you know, she goes, yeah. she could tell them something. It's kind of cool, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, Jody, um, we've, been at this, uh, we've been at this an hour. Um, Steve Kantner, who I'm really, really starting to uh, get to know as a, as a close friend, he would not leave me alone until... <laughs> I think, I, called he, I think you. he thought he was doing me a favor. I don't know. I think, <laughs> or you one, maybe. No, no. my point was, it's his way for him, for him to put us together. Mm-hmm. It's his way to keep contributing at his day and age. Mm-hmm. And I watch him, um, and I know he can't do everything that he wants to do, mm-hmm. but I know that he's doing everything that he can do. Right. So I'm really glad that I got a chance to come over here, sit down, get the interview done and um and i want to thank you for 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 taking the role that you did in the sobs yeah i, I wish i, I i'm not doing the, the stellar job i want to be able to do but my two big goals were to uh, increase membership which we were doing and to get a, a solid fishing schedule in front of the group which we've done and really get that that side of it going because i know if you have trips scheduled get people involved that's what's going to bring, keep people coming back. I've noticed that we have um, more people coming to the meetings. We always have good speakers. Uh, many of the speakers I've learned something from. You know, right. um, We had Alan Zerimba. He really increased my ability to fish for peacock bass. He basically gave, away, gave us his playbook, you know, how to do it, what lures to use, everything. Right. And overnight, my peacock bass fishing improved. Uh, we had another kid come in bass fishing and he showed us this one um lure a worm with a swim tail on it of some kind uh man that thing catches fish (laughs) (laughs) right sometimes it's the dumbest thing yeah something you would never buy into yeah but because another guy showed it to you yeah it's their thing it's like hey no this is real yeah so well the, the the fishing club thing um i'm not positive but i think it's on a comeback a little bit because I think people are getting over-digitalized. You know what maybe, I mean? Maybe. Well, like for me, um, when YouTube came out and you could just kind of YouTube everything, I tried to watch everything. Mm. Now, I try not to see a lot of stuff because it's, it's just, overwhelming. It's overwhelming. There's too much crap. There's not real authority. You're not sure what you're watching is worth the two minutes of time that you're putting in. Mm. At the beginning of it, you kind of knew if any content was online, one, it was up to you whether or not you wanted to risk, you know, spending time and energy doing it. But it wasn't um, propaganda, it wasn't ad-driven, it wasn't algorithm-driven. It was what you wanted. Right. Which is totally gone. And um, for guys, especially younger guys like Abusak of the world or whatever, for them to be able to actually shake hands and call other people their friends that are doing things that they're inspired to do. There's only one way to do that, and that's 
to meet them and to, and to be part of their life. And right. with a fishing club, you can do that. Well, yeah, and it's a social thing, right? And again, there's great guys in the group. I've learned a lot. I've, you know, um, there's three or four that I go out west with now. You know, on a regular trip, trout fishing trip out there, and um, a couple of guys own places over in Chukaluski, so it's a place to stay. And uh, I've enjoyed it. You know, uh, again, I've made friends there that I didn't have before. I've um, gotten back with people I kind of lost touch with a little bit, and um, we're bringing in we're, our other goal is to bring in younger people. We're doing that too, mm-hmm. which has been real good. Um, so I. I'm, I'm a big believer in fishing clubs. I've been involved with three of them, this one included, and it's just always enhanced my fishing. Right, right. Well, I think the uh, the audience that we have on the Real Guy podcast could not be more in the niche that you're looking for with the SOBs. I mean, really. I told Steve Kantner that. I says, uh, uh, he was telling me that he was at the club the other night, and I says, I says see how many guys listen to the podcast? I said, because of all the content that we create, if there was ever an audience that it was specified to, mm-hmm. it would be the SOVs. Okay, well, great. Sportsmen well, to Broward. <laughs> well, I hope it helps us in that regard, our recruiting effort, sure. Well, um, if you're interested in um, uh, getting into the SOBs, or any fishing club for that matter, you can email me, jeff at lunkerdog.com, and I'll hook you up with the right people. And um, I think the millennials of the world... I think if if you could get uh, a little momentum with some of those guys. Gosh, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you will be subject to guys like myself, you know, I'm 61, who fished these areas for the last 35, almost 40 years. Right. And you, you just can't overnight get that kind of information, you know. And there's so many good places to fish. It's not like, oh, you'll never see their secret spot. You will because it's a good place to go. But then there'll be so many more that you know, I, I can't get to it all. Right. That's you know, if somebody serves you something, they don't have to worry. I'm not going to fish it out because I'll probably only fish it one time. Right, <laughs> right, right. And I tell you something else about spots. Spots change. They do. People, people fish spots that I used to fish 15 years ago that I would go nowhere close to now. Yeah. But they think because they saw a picture of me or a video, you know, 15 years ago, that's where they should be. So for all the spot stealers out there, good luck with that. Yeah. Join a fishing club, become a real guy, and uh, hang out with dudes like Jody Moore. Thank you. Thanks for being on the Real <laughs> Guy you, Podcast. Hey, run that dog. <laughs> <laughs>